Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. Now, despite current global uncertainties, many investors remain undeterred when it comes to investing in Singapore. In 2021, the private equity and venture capital deals in the region hit a value of approximately 16.5 billion US dollars, according to Statistica. This indicates a significant increase from the previous year's total value of about just 5 billion US dollars. However, as crucial as growth is to a company's worth, it's not the only factor that investors should take into account. Investors' new interest in profitability is highlighted by the fact that 62% of investors consider cost and margin improvements to play an important role. And that's according to a 2022 Asia-Pacific Private Equity Report survey. In the current economic landscape of lower growth, higher inflation, higher interest rates, where should investors place their focus? Jeffrey Liu joins us. He's CEO and co-founder of GenFi. It's a fintech company company that provides revenue-based financing to rapidly growing businesses in Asia. Now, Jeffrey, let's start off by talking about how, when it comes to a company's success, profitability and growth, of course, go hand in hand. However, additional capital is typically required if you want to scale and profitably build viable business models. So what does chasing profitability really translate to in terms of actions? That's a great question. And thank you for having me. So, you know, profitability is one of those things that, you know, some think it's nice to have. But, you know, when you really think about sustainability for a business long term, you need to be profitable so that you're able to essentially generate enough cash flow so that you can reinvest in your growth, reinvest in new opportunities and so forth. So what this really translates to is that management teams and founders of companies, they need to make tough decisions as to the type of growth trajectory they really want to run with. Because depending on that decision, if you want to chase high growth versus slower, more sustained growth, the type of you know capital you take on, the type of investors, the type of investments you make have a very huge implications. And I think right now we're sort of reaching that environment where gone is the time when there's easy credit where you can kind of just chase all sorts of growth without really thinking too much about profitability because there's always capital available to now change an environment where profitability now is sort of the number one driver for the ability to obtain capital and sort of the, the biggest indication of whether a company would be sustainable in the long term. Mm, there are many pitfalls to growing too quickly, right? That's correct. We're we seeing some of them, yeah. We saw a lot of that happen in actually in 2021 when there was a lot of hot money, you know, from the VC market, from the private equity market and, you know, other private sources of capital where it really unlocked a lot of growth. But, you know, there wasn't necessarily the right type of growth that happened. Now, you offer revenue-based financing. Why is this more viable for a digital native company rather than just traditional bank and financial institutional financing? Yeah, so revenue-based financing is a special type of financing. It's quite new in the region. And essentially how it works is that you're funding companies and then tying the repayment to a percentage of their future sales. So one of the reasons why revenue-based financing works quite well for a lot of companies, especially these digital native businesses, is that it actually instills a lot of discipline. It ties essentially, you know, the repayment to some percentage of your sales. So you can only take, you know, a certain amount of capital from revenue-based financing such that it would be 
appropriate for your repayment after you know, taking the capital. So it instills a lot more discipline. It prevents companies from becoming over levered. So that was another sort of learning, I think, from a lot of SMEs and corporates, you know, in, in the past cycle where, you know, they might have overextended themselves because of over leverage. And so revenue-based financing ensures that they're only taking the amount of capital that is sustainable from their revenue repayments. Do I need collateral? How much do I have to pay in terms of fees? I'm sure there are costs to this. The cost is similar to other types of financing, you know, whether it's uh, traditional loans and so forth. So there's there's a financing fee that comes on top of the capital you take on. But the implication there is that there's a lot of flexibility. There's a lot more the ability to sort of take on capital very quickly. And then also in terms of the variability of the repayment model makes it a lot more dynamic so that it's tied to your true sales performance rather than being you know, locked into some kind of fixed repayment that might or not, might not be sustainable. Mm, is that collateral that's needed or equity um, that they have no, to give no, up? No hard collateral required. So typically revenue-based financing is tied to your sales performance. So it's more about whether you have sustainable daily sales activity or not. Mm, so this isn't available, of course, for pre-revenue companies, right? That's correct. So it's only for companies that have already some kind of revenue track record. Mm. Some might say, you know, there is no lack of VCs or angel investors out there, so I can just get money from them. Why should I bother with this model? Yeah, so revenue-based financing is not necessarily meant to replace all sorts of capital. Yes, it's a very good source, but, you know, we are actually quite complementary to a lot of VC funding, debt funding, and so forth. So the way that you can think about revenue-based financing is that, you know, you can secure long-term sources of capital, you know, with VC funding, you're bringing on board, not just the capital, but also the expertise and sort of, you know, maybe board level advisors to help with the company, you know, over its cycle. But then you layer on top of that revenue-based financing capital that's generally more short-term to help achieve your immediate objectives for the next quarter or the next six months. Mm. I'm just thinking about the role that banks and financial institutions play here. And I've heard the criticism before that they tend to have outdated practices and too many compliance regulations. So some might say that they are right to have all of those things in place. There's a good reason for compliance. There's a good reason for regulations. And there's a very good reason for a lot of their practices. What's your view on this, considering that you're sort of coming from the other side, aren't you? Yes, and that's the reason why there's a lot of opportunities for you know financial technology companies like GenFi. So banks, they definitely need to follow the requirements under risk management, and especially with the changing regulatory environment, um, you know, risk management is probably one of the most important sort of topics for them. And I think that translates to certain processes where they have to set out companies that are more mature, that are more established. And that leaves a lot of companies that might be earlier in their life cycle or maybe not as asset rich, for example, to, to be able to obtain the same type of credit. And that's the reason why the alternative financing provide you know, a great option for these companies. What other sorts of data should they be looking at? Let's say banks and financial institutions want to do more here for digitally native companies. What data would you urge them to look at instead of what they are currently looking at? Yes, so probably the most interesting set of data to look at is actually a company's real-time transaction level data. So these are things like POS systems, credit card transaction processing, or merchant accounts where the storefronts, for example, like e-commerce businesses actually generate daily sales and they're recording it through these platforms. Yet, you know, banks and other financial institutions have to wait until, 
you know, the end of a quarter for financial statements to come out before they can even evaluate what has transpired in the last 90 days. And so being a little bit more forward looking with real time data that's, you know, transaction level really helps. Mm. To what extent do you expect them to actually do more of this in order to come more closely connected with digitally native companies? I think banks inherently always have an interest in being able to branch out and to increase their, you know, their customer base. And so they do so actually by partnering with you know, other fintechs, with maybe other credit scoring companies, with other sort of data firms to help them with this process. So I think there's always going to be an ongoing discovery from banks, but I think at the same time, it does require a lot of structural changes. And once again, they have to worry about compliance, regulatory issues. And so not necessarily sure you know, how much they can really advance in sort of this category. Mm. How do you guys manage your risk? So we, you know, as a fintech, we have a lot more flexibility in terms of how we structure ourselves. And so we are able to really connect to the underlying data sources of all these different businesses, understand their daily transaction level data, their, you know, their daily sales, their order basket sizes. And that gives us actually a lot more granular understanding of the true performance and true viability of the business. And so I would say being data first and being able to extract a deeper level of understanding of companies allows us to you know, de-risk as we evaluate different opportunities. Considering the growth of digitally native companies in the last few years and the expected growth in the next few years, what do you expect to do in this space in order to be able to be of service to them? So we expect to evolve with the industry. So as more and more of these digital infrastructure gets built out, so what I mean by this is, you know, like payment processors like Stripe, Braintree, where you collect online payments, or storefronts like Shopify, where you can you know, immediately open an e-commerce storefront, or even marketplace platforms like Lazada or Shopee, where you immediately have a channel to sell. There'll be more and more of these types of players that is the what I consider the infrastructure players that then provide and help support the ecosystem. And so we would continue building a lot of these data integrations where we can connect to more and more of these players so that we can help underwrite these client companies that we serve and help them support their growth objectives. All right. Thank you very much for that, Jeffrey. Appreciate your time today. Jeffrey Liu, CEO and co-founder of GenFi. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.